Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional health care for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Jessica Montavo of Forum Health Wheaton. Dr. Montavo received a bachelor's degree in English and American literature from Harvard University and attended the University of Rochester School of Medicine. She completed a residency in internal medicine at Northwestern in Chicago and subsequent training in hospice and palliative medicine. After 10 years of practice in the hospital setting, Dr. Montavo trained with the Institute for Functional Medicine and Dr. Dale Bredesen's training in reversing cognitive decline known as the RECODE program. She is currently halfway through a certification with Dr. Tom Moorcroft in Lyme disease and related conditions and has training in frequency specific microcurrent therapy. She is passionate about reversing cognitive decline treating chronic infections, and managing mold-related and tick-borne illnesses. Welcome, Dr. Montavo. Thank you so much, Britt. Thank you for um, spending some time with us. And as Britt already said, this is going to be a discussion around Lyme disease um, and really thinking about the sort of biology piece of it a little bit, just a little bit. What is Lyme disease? Um, what why is it such a challenge some, about symptoms? We're gonna talk a little bit about ticks, about their life cycle and why that makes our lives quite difficult when it comes to something like Lyme disease. And then we're gonna really spend a chunk of our time talking about prevention and early treatment and what to do when you've been bitten. Because let's face it, in the Midwest, we don't always get the nicest weather um, and, you know, and we, you know, deserve to be out there enjoying the outdoors, but I worry sometimes that people are, are getting um, a little bit, you know, kind of paranoid um, about, you know, what, you know, what's going on out there with Lyme. And I want to make sure that we all have the right information to, to be out enjoying uh, this beautiful weather that we now have. Um, and really, I did not start off um, being, I was not really focused on becoming somebody uh, who was going to be working with Lyme disease. I thought it was too crazy and too complicated. Um, and then it just fell into my lap uh, with so many different patients. And I realized that so many people were suffering because this is a challenging diagnosis. It is challenging to treat. And that really there's so much complexity and a lot of reward when you work um, with you know, Lyme and its co-infections. So I actually found myself a mentor and have been working in Dr. Tom Moorcroft's Lyme disease practitioner certification program now uh, for about a year and have learned a tremendous amount um, and continue to learn a tremendous amount. And now I feel that Lyme is, is really kind of a cornerstone of my practice. So we're really going to start off by thinking about, you know, what, you know, is Lyme disease? Um, so why do we want to care about this? And so I want to, you know, get through, you know, some kind of, of our important facts. You know, this is really a vector-borne illness. Um, it is in the United States and Europe predominantly. And it is a vector illness is really means that you have you know, an organism such as a tick that transmits a bacteria like Borrelia burgdorferi. This is the bacteria that classically causes Lyme disease. Um, and it can transmit this from one organism to another. There are more than 300,000 new cases of Lyme disease diagnosed every year. Um, that is like an over 300% rise in uh, the last decade. And on one hand, that makes me happy because I think we're noticing it more, we're testing for it more. Um, but I also just think the number of cases are really, really going up. And I think that it's important to really know that every single state in the US has ticks that are infected 
with Lyme disease. There's still a misconception out there that you're really not going to get Lyme disease unless you live on the East Coast in the Northeast or unless you live in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And it's certainly true that those areas are going to have a higher percentage of infected ticks, but every single state, including Alaska and Hawaii, has documented cases of Lyme. And so, as I mentioned, Borrelia really are bacteria. Um, they're a class of bacteria called spirochetes, and they cause the symptoms that we call Lyme disease. There are at least 19 species of Borrelia that we know about so far, and four have been shown to cause symptoms of Lyme disease. And those would be the Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, the Borrelia maonii, uh, Borrelia ofzelii, and the gorinii. So, you know, try saying all of that. 10 times fast. Uh, those last two I mentioned, Apsilii and Gorinii, are more in Europe, but people travel. And so sometimes we do end up actually diagnosing these particular bacteria for people who are in the States and presenting with uh, infection symptoms. I see a lot of people in my practice with a variety of symptoms that we eventually discover to be Lyme disease. And it's just really sobering how few people remember that any tick bite. Um, it's, it's really uh, upsetting. I mean, I think our best estimate is maybe, maybe 50% of people that I end up diagnosing remember that they might've been bitten by a tick. Um, and so that makes prevention and early treatment even more important. The other thing that is important to know is that it can take over 30 days for any symptoms of Lyme disease to come up. Um, and, and many people may not remember that they took a camping trip or a hike 30 days ago. We are a busy culture, a distracted society, and sometimes you're going to forget um, that you may have had a, a potential exposure. And making the diagnosis becomes more difficult because of this disconnect in memory. It's important also to know that really fewer than half the people who get bitten by a tick and get Lyme will ever have that typical bullseye rash. Um, and this is not well taught to practitioners or to the public. I think there's still a lot of people who think that if you, you know, get a bullseye rash, that's Lyme disease. And that is true. That's often going to be Lyme disease. But we don't spend a lot of time educating people that only about 30% of people are going to get a bullseye rash. So it is not by any means a requirement. And just because you didn't get a rash doesn't mean that you may not have been, that you were not exposed to Lyme. I think that, you know, there's, we have to really educate, you know, the public and practitioners about, you know, these subtleties. Um, and that's why you're all here. You know, I want you all to become more informed so that you can be taking more charge, you know, of your care. So I think that it does help, you know, to sort of know your ticks. And, you know, this is the, you know, sort of the seventh grade biology part of this, we're not going to go too, too crazy with it, but I do want to, to just get a sense, you know, of, of what the ticks that we're talking about look like. Um, they are really parasites. They are parasitic arachnids, like, like in the family of spiders, um, and they depend on a host's blood for nutrition. Um, a hard tick, which is kind of like this, like, you know, one with like its hard shell up there, is going to require three blood meals total to go from a larva to a nymph to an adult. Those are their three main life stages. And to find a blood meal, they look for body heat and they look for carbon dioxide coming out of a potential host. And that is where the whole quest begins for the tick. They literally will hold on to something in the environment, such as a blade of grass, some leaf litter, maybe the fibers of a dog bed. Um, and they do that with that third and fourth pair of legs, the sort of bottom legs. They hold on with that. And then with those first two pairs of legs, the top ones, they're reaching out, reaching out to jump onto a mouse, a deer, or a person. And we were, I was just chatting with Britt about how just even walking through the grass, sometimes if you're on really tall grass, you can notice like that there's some ticks that, that, that can just be sort of crawling on you. It, it's a, they're, they are very hardy. You have to remember that they have been around for millions of years and they have extremely well developed survival mechanisms. So we, we really cannot underestimate them. Um, so the black-legged tick, the deer tick, um, is one of the types of ticks that is most likely to be carrying Lyme, um, the, the bacteria that causes Lyme. Um, and that is, there's also a sort of Western deer tick partner to this deer tick. And as you might expect, 
they're mainly on the West Coast. And these are the ones that we tend to worry about the most when we're specifically thinking about Lyme. And I don't expect all of you to become, you know, masterful at identifying ticks just through this very short webinar, uh, but there are many great cards out there that you can actually buy laminated that will show you what kind of tick is what. And this can be really helpful. It's when we start to think about getting a tick tested later on. Um, and I will come back to that, but, but a, a card can be very helpful. If you're somebody who you know you're gonna be outdoors quite a bit, it's worth having a card around so that if you do see a tick on yourself, family member, friend, um, you can then you know, try to identify what kind of tick it is. And if you understand their life cycle a little bit, it'll give you a sense of what to watch for, you know, during your tick season, uh, which I think of the tick season is kind of like mid spring to like mid fall. Those are really sort of your prime times, um, though ticks can live through winter, unfortunately. We worry less in those situations. Most of us are not out in, you know, shorts and t-shirts in the winter. So it's a little less of an issue. Um, that being said, you know, it's knowing more about their life cycle can kind of help you know what you should be looking out for. Um, the tick is really going to come out of an egg in the summer. It's the larva. That's it's like sort of first stage. It attaches to a small animal like a mouse. Um, and that mouse may be carrying Borrelia, which now that, that like larva is going to acquire, um, and it's going to have a blood meal from that mouse. It's going to drop off. It's going to get another pair of legs, move on to that next phase and become a nymph. And usually the nymph kind of chills out, hangs out under leaf litter and, and sort of waits, waits for its time. And then in the spring, when things really get going, that nymph is going to go and move to some low growing vegetation and it's waiting for a new host. Um, and you remember it's looking for body heat, it's looking for carbon dioxide. Um, we give off carbon dioxide um, and we give off body heat. And so at this point, it will attach to another host. It's gonna take its next blood meal and then it's possibly going to transmit pathogens, right? To that host, you know, if it, whether that be a deer or a mouse or a human. And this is really the moment, the time when you might, you know, really start finding ticks, you know, whether you find them crawling on you, you find that they've bitten you and they're now kind of attached, you know, they can it be you, it could be your dog. Uh, I mean, I was also talking about a camping trip we did last summer, we brought our two dogs, came home and that uh, week into being home, I was petting one of my dogs like around the neck. And I was just like, what is that weird little bump? And, you know, when I really like got to look through the fur and they have black fur, so not easy uh, to find ticks. But I saw this, you know, tick that had attached itself. It had fed, it had gotten extremely fat. Um, and, and I could see that, you know, clearly it had been there, you know, for, for a few days. Um, and so you have to, you know, be you know, definitely, you know, quite vigilant. And we're going to talk about, you know, how to conduct more effective checks, you know, certainly for yourself and for your pets. Um, and then, of course, that middle time, that nymph, you know, will move on. Um, it will get, it gets fat from a meal. And then it's going to drop off the host again. And it's now an adult. And now in the fall, we deal with the adults. And they, again, may attach to a deer, a dog, a human. And so you can see how we just kind of get into a cycle here. And while, you know, we're talking more specifically tonight about Lyme disease, you know, it's really important to understand that ticks are often carrying multiple pathogens. They don't just transmit this Borrelia bacteria. Uh, two of the more famous co-infections that can come with Lyme, we usually call them friends of Lyme, are Bartonella and Babesia. And some of you on this webinar, I know have you know, been diagnosed with Lyme. You may have also been diagnosed with these um, infections as well. And I'm sure some of you have maybe not been diagnosed, but you may have heard of these organisms. It's beyond the scope of what we're talking about today to talk about all of these things, but I bring it up because it's just so important to prevent tick bites whenever possible and to identify what tick has bitten you and what that tick has as soon as possible. And when we leave these infections, unfortunately, when they're festering in our body for a long time, it's much harder to get rid of them. Um, we can do better when we treat them sort of hard and fast right away. So I wanted to just take a moment spending, thinking about how Lyme can look different in terms of symptoms, you know, when we're dealing with an acute infection, you know, versus a more you know, chronic one. And for the purposes of this webinar, I'm just gonna define acute as an infection where the symptoms happen within three months of a tick bite. Um, I think that the symptoms that tend to come up in that time period 
um, you know, are going to be a lot of flu-like symptoms. That's usually the first thing. And it's so nonspecific, it feels unhelpful, I know. And that's why the history of exposure is so important. Um, this is going to mean fevers and chills for most people. Very unusual fatigue, very unusual fatigue. Like you just, you know, hit, hit, by, hit by like a bus, feel like you can't, you know, get up, you can't like, you know, do anything, um, not super dissimilar, you know, these days to what maybe a severe, you know, COVID infection could look like, um, minus some of the respiratory things, of course. Headaches is the other big thing that I really think about when I think about acute Lyme infections. Um, sometimes people will get a rash, although, as I mentioned, that bullseye rash is not a guarantee. You cannot assume that you did not get Lyme disease just because there was no bullseye rash, but people can get no rash or they could get actually some other kind of rash. So many possibilities. Um, some people will have some swollen lymph nodes. So usually that would be kind of around your neck, under your, like your chin area here, you may have a little bit of, of pain and swelling, sometimes under uh, the armpit area, there's lymph nodes there as well. Um, then when we start thinking about what chronic symptoms we might see. So now we're talking about symptoms that are really popping up more than three months um, after that tick bite. And sometimes it's years after that tick bite. Um, a lot of people in my experience will have the fatigue and the headaches, but they also get a lot more cardiac and neurologic manifestations. Um, and those are things like chest pain, uh, shortness of breath, sometimes fainting, a lot of numbness and tingling in the body, uh, burning or shooting pains, uh, lots of challenges with memory, lots of issues with memory and brain fog. So obviously as someone who works with cognitive decline, I always have Lyme on my radar as a, as a possible issue for someone who's complaining of memory loss. Um, and then we can have this issues with hearing loss, ringing in ears. It seems to be very, very common with more chronic issues with Lyme. Vertigo, um, so that sense of dizziness, like the world is spinning. Um, and then sometimes like problems walking, problems with balance. It's a very long list of symptoms. Um, and you can see that in some ways, it feels like these symptoms don't really go together. They cross many, many systems. Um, and I think that that is, you know, probably one of the main reasons, you know, that we can have a lot of challenges diagnosing this. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, certainly a lot of people that I've seen, you know, who have a more chronic manifestation of Lyme, you know, they got antibiotics. Um, they, they, some of them did. Um, and I think that maybe one of the sort of takeaways there is that one dose of antibiotics or even four to six weeks of one single antibiotic is probably not enough. Um, I think that most of us who kind of consider ourselves to be in the Lyme literate world would say that if you make a diagnosis, especially and more acute diagnosis, you're probably gonna to need to hit that with multiple antibiotics and, and probably herbs as well. Um, we have more evidence that Lyme persists than we have evidence that it goes away and we cure it. So I really don't ever talk about cure uh, with Lyme. I think honestly more about remission of symptoms. And so again, we, you're talking about just the difficulty of diagnosing this. So you have all these symptoms that go across many different systems. It can be hard to make sense of all of that. Um, and I'm sure, you know, some of you who are here today who have Lyme, whether a more acute or chronic form of it, it may have taken you a while to get a diagnosis. Um, and that's hard and extremely frustrating. And I've heard this obviously from many, many patients. And I think that the main issues there are that we have education problems, we have testing problems, um, and the fact that we have bacteria that are so skilled at hiding from the immune system um, that all of these things together just creates a really difficult situation. Symptoms, you know, they can look like many things. You know, many people with fever and chills, you know, they, they don't necessarily think much of it, right? And a lot of practitioners may not either. Um, and I think that a lot of times, you know, people are told that, you know, they're fine, there's nothing to worry about, um, your blood work is normal, et cetera. Um, the testing's a challenge, it really is. Even if uh, somebody decides, like a practitioner decides they're gonna test for Lyme, um, while the testing has gotten better in recent years, it's far from perfect. And if you're dealing with a practitioner who may not be as knowledgeable or focused on Lyme and chronic infections, you know, they may be doing their testing through commercial labs like LabCorp and Quest, maybe like a hospital-based lab. The methodology that those labs are using to detect infection is 
simply just not sensitive enough. Those tests miss a lot of cases. Um, most of us in the Lyme space are using specialty labs, and this is where labs like Igenix, MDL, um, and Vibrant really, you know, become important. Unfortunately, those lab tests can get very expensive. I'm sure, again, many of you here, if any of you have gotten tested through Igenix, it's our gold standard lab, but none of those tests come cheap. Um, and insurance does not really do much to pay uh, for these things. So it's a, it's a rough situation all around. Um, the bacteria themselves, the Borrelia, they are so good at hiding from the immune system. Um, it is really, um, it's really something. I mean, I was saying earlier, if you didn't hate them so much, you almost have to admire them for the crazy amount of skills that they've acquired in their uh, million years of living. Um, what is challenging is that they are able to change the proteins on their coating, you know, and the antibodies in our body, you know, they, they sort of get honed in to different signals from different, you know, uh, viruses, bacteria, et cetera. And if it's, you, it's kind of like, you know, the Lyme pathogen starts off wearing like a red coat, let's say, and the body, you know, decides that it's going to make antibodies looking for the red coat, looking for the red coat. And then when that bacteria senses that it's in danger and that there's kind of a lot of immune activity against it, it's like, okay, well now I'm going to wear a blue coat. And it's kind of like the immune system has to sort of do the work all over again of finding it and making antibodies and, and mounting a response. And, you know, and then now it's like, well, I think I'm going to wear a purple coat. So you can kind of see where I'm going with this. You know, it's really skillful um, at evading the immune system. And it is really good at getting into what we call privileged spaces in the body. And these are places that the immune system just has a really difficult time getting into. Um, these are places like joints, eyes, the brain, blood vessels. So again, you think about some of our main symptoms of Lyme, joint pain, you know, being one of the worst, um, there's reasons for that um, because that's a good place for those bacteria to hide. Um, and that, it makes sense that when you sort of think about where all of those different tissues are in the body, no wonder Lyme can show up with so many different symptoms. So with all that being said, this is why prevention and early recognition are key. You know, we really want to avoid getting Lyme disease as much as we can. Um, we shouldn't just stay in our houses and never go outside and never go camping because that's not healthy either. There's clearly many, many health benefits to being out there in nature. And I think that we can be um, with just a, a little bit of knowledge, some habit change um, and, you know, a few sort of things in our corner, you know, for, for prevention prophylaxis that I'll talk about. So now we're going to really just be focusing, you know, on these strategies. And we're going to think about what should you do if and when you realize, you know, that you have been bitten by a tick. Uh, a lot of people call the office well after they were bitten. And when, and then they tell me, tell the staff what they did. It's just often wasn't the right thing. Um, and I want to make sure that you all have this information about what to do. So you don't even need to call the office. You can just get started with the next appropriate steps. Um, and even if you're someone who's been dealing with Lyme or another infection in a more chronic way, you should also be focused on preventing bites because that is actually a very common reason why people relapse. They get another exposure through another tick bite. So even if you know, you've been diagnosed and have been dealing with symptoms for a while, this information is still really important for you. So you can see that we have kind of four different categories here uh, that we're going to be touching on. So we'll kind of start with the skin prevention strategies. And a lot of, you know, this is taken from Dr. Alexis Chesney's really excellent book, Preventing Lyme. Uh, she's a naturopathic doctor, um, really a, a fan of how she explains things. And I've learned a lot uh, reading this book. Um, so you really want to be thinking about what can you put on your skin to make a bite less likely. You want to make yourself as unattractive as possible to the ticks. And when it comes to personal tick repellent, the research shows that essential oils on the skin are effective as a personal repellent spray. One product that we recommend highly is called Cedar Side Tick Shield. It's 20% cedar wood oil and 80% hydrated silica. Um, that cedar wood oil disrupts tick pheromones. And that means that you're going to mess up with the tick's bodily functions. It won't be able to breathe. It gets very disoriented. So in, in other words, essentially much less focused on biting you. 
And in one study, when deer ticks were placed on the bottom of filter paper that was treated with the cedar side tick shield on one half, they kind of put it on one half, they held the, the in like a vertical direction, 100% of the ticks moved and were repelled. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Um, the repellent is also safe on dogs that are over 20 pounds. Let me say that again, safe for dogs over 20 pounds and not safe for small dogs, not safe for cats. Um, I wish that I was a veterinarian and could provide all of the options. We're gonna talk a little bit about um, pets uh, for a brief moment, um, but for those of you with medium and bigger dogs, this is a great product uh, that you can be using on your pets when they're out hiking and camping with you. Um, you want to spray this generously on your skin, your clothing, and your head. People forget the head, but ticks do have a way of kind of liking to get into the neck area. So you do want to actually cover all of this. Um, and you want to really reapply this like every couple hours. If you're going to be out and about on a camping trip, on a hiking trip, especially if you're sweating a lot, you need to be conscious of reapplying. Um, I think that there's another you know, product on the horizon, still not ready for prime time, but it's called Nutcatone. I don't know why they chose that name, but it's Nutcatone. Um, it's actually an essential oil combination of grapefruit and yellow cedar. Um, and it has been shown to also repel deer ticks. Uh, last I checked, um, still um, not ready for commercial use. I think that there's still some investigations going on with it, uh, with the Environmental Protection Agency and the company that's making it. So now let's think about the clothing piece of this. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can manipulate clothing to help you in trying to avoid tick bites. And the first thing is to wear light colored clothing. Um, ticks, before they fed and gotten fat, they can be as small as the period at the end of a sentence. It's super hard to see them. You don't wanna make the job harder by wearing dark clothing that's gonna make it easy for them to hide. You want to be focusing on clothing that is white, cream colored, a light beige, pastels. You get the idea here, just where you're going to have an easier time seeing like a little dot that might be moving around. Much easier with light colored clothing. You also should tuck your pants into your socks and your shirt into your pants. I know it doesn't always look cool, but we're not talking about looking cool really on our camping trip and on our hiking trip. We really shouldn't be caring about that. We should be communing with nature and we should be safe, safe from ticks. So tucking in the clothing and just making it harder. Don't expose more skin than you need to expose. And if you're going to be, you know, going to an area for several days, again, for camping and hiking, please wear pants. I, I get that it can feel inconvenient. We all like wearing shorts in the summertime, um, but wearing shorts is really gonna increase your chances of being bitten. Um, it's just that much more skin for the ticks to be grabbing onto. Um, you can get lightweight pants from a lot of companies. Um, there's a good selection usually at stores like REI or, or other kind of camping goods stores. It's worth the feeling of inconvenience. Um, and as a rule, you should really avoid walking through grass and leaf litter for extended periods of time. You know, when I'm talking about those long grasses, you know, piles and piles of leaf litter, please do your best to like stay on trails. Um, that are going to be present most of the time when you're, you know, doing, going on a campground or, you know, some kind of a well-known hiking area. When you come in from the outdoors, place your clothes in the dryer immediately. You want to set that dryer at high heat for six minutes to kill ticks. If you choose to wash your clothes first, the water temperature has to be at least 130 degrees Fahrenheit, if not more, ideally more. You want it really hot. At that temperature, you'll kill the nymph and the adult tick. That's what you want to do. If the water temperature is lower, you won't kill all of them. And you may actually end up helping them out by hydrating them, which is bizarre. They are, like I said, wonderful survival mechanisms. They've been around for millions of years. It's not easy to kill them. So if you're going to wash them first, again, high, high heat, and then you have to put them in the dryer for a very long time, usually like 55 minutes <clears throat> on a very high heat. So I think that, you know, me personally, I, I say, you know, do the dryer first, just do the six minutes to really high heat, kill anything that might be on your clothes. And then of course you can throw them in the hamper and, and do, you know, laundry with them later. 
Others people find it helpful to shower as soon as they come in, you know, from being, you know, outdoors for a while. You're not going to kill ticks by showering, but you may be able to recognize a crawling tick and it makes it easier to do a full body check. If you're like me and, and my husband, maybe you go camping for a few days at a time, car camping as we call it, and you're not necessarily going to have immediate access to a dryer. Um, so this is where garbage bags with a tie can be very helpful. When you're done wearing an outfit on your camping trip, stick it in a garbage bag, tie it shut, you know, and, and then as soon as you get home, stick them all in the dryer, super high heat, six minutes. Another really wonderful strategy to consider is to treat your clothing with permethrin. Some of you may have heard of permethrin. Uh, it's been shown to be highly effective against tick bites and it's safe for use in humans. Um, in one study, uh, researchers found that subjects who were wearing permethrin treated sneakers and socks were 73 times less likely to have a tick bite than subjects who were wearing just untreated footwear. You can treat your clothing at home, or you can send that clothing to a company that accepts the clothing and will apply that permethrin commercially. There are also companies where you can even buy permethrin clothing that has already been treated for you. If you're a do-it-yourself kind of person, you, there's a couple of brands of permethrin that you can look for. Uh, one is called Sawyer and the other one is called Martin's. Um, you wanna use a 0.5% permethrin for the treatment, uh, which is important. And usually a treatment will be effective through about six washes um, or about six weeks, just depends on how often you're, you're wearing and that outfit and how often you're washing it. Uh, when permethrin is dry, it's safe, um, but in its liquid form, it will be toxic to human skin and to pets. So you have to apply it and let it dry. You can apply it with a spray or you can do soak. If it's a small clothing item, the spray usually makes more sense. If it's a lot of you know, bulkier clothing, um, pants, shirts, et cetera, then you may wanna just soak it. You can, um, and then for larger amounts of clothing, again, you may wanna consider sending it to a company that can just treat everything. Um, and the one that I know of that I think is pretty good is Insect Shield. Um, they can treat and they, they treat the clothing and it's, they've actually got this factory based technique where it's a long lasting permethrin application. And you can, it's uh, kind of insane that it will hold the permethrin for 70 washes, seven zero washes. Uh, that's obviously a lot of washes. So um, again, if you are less a do it yourself person and, and would like some help with this, you know, look in the insect shield, you can, you know, definitely get clothing um, treated there. They've done some studies on workers um, in states like North Carolina, where yeah, lots of ticks, um, and they looked at those who were wearing clothing that was treated by Insect Shield versus people who were wearing clothing that you know wasn't. And there was like a 99% decrease in the rate of tick bites acquired during work hours, and a 93% decrease just in tick bites in general. That is really impressive. Very important to know though that if you dry clean the clothes, you will remove permethrin. So you will have to reapply it. Um, so if you chose, you know, to treat your, you know, sheets or your blankets or something, because you're, you know, maybe doing some camping, and then you eventually get that dry cleaned, it no longer has any permethrin, it will have to be reapplied. And then you can also need to like be thinking about where you're storing these items, because if you put permethrin items directly in UV light, lots of sunshine, um, the permethrin can degrade. So you do need to kind of store it in a more dark and cool place. All right, so now we're gonna think about what can we do in terms of prophylaxis strategies. So we've talked obviously about skin application, we've talked about clothing. What can we take though? Can we take anything, ingest? things that will help us decrease you know, our chances of getting Lyme. Um, and I think for me, you know, I, you know, obviously I'm a traditionally trained MD, lots of experience with pharmaceuticals and antibiotics. I do think though that herbs make a lot more sense when we're talking about prevention, um, mainly because antibiotics are designed to only kill bacteria. That's what they, all, that's all they can do. Um, but there obviously are some tick-borne diseases 
that are not bacteria. Um, there's viruses, there's protozoa, and while we're not talking about all those things, if you're going to take something, you might as well take something that gives you a greater chance of preventing many things. And plants are, you know, they're complex. They have many compounds that work together in favor of our bodies. They support our immune system a little differently in trying to contain something like an infection organism that doesn't belong there. And so we're gonna think a little bit about the you know, specific formulas that are helpful you know, for prevention. Um, but for a moment, let's think about maybe who is the best candidates you know, for this. Happily, these formulas are very safe. Um, I don't really have concerns about most people taking these at a prevention dose. Um, some people probably need this a lot more than others. And you might you know, think about this from the perspective of occupations and hobbies. So if you're someone who is in the way of ticks very frequently, and these are gonna be of course people in farming, landscaping, electrical line work, logging, land surveying, um, construction, forestry, any work with animals, any kind of park or wildlife uh, management, you know, these people are gonna be at much higher risk. Of, of being exposed to ticks. And I think that it makes sense that they consider doing something uh, preventive. If you're somebody though, who is also, again, really an aggressive hiker, an aggressive camper, maybe you horseback ride, you love gardening and the brush, you, you love maybe even golfing. I mean, people can get set up in different ways to, to you know, be in line for tick bites. So again, it might make sense to, to consider doing something like this. And you can see you know, that you know, these are the main herbs here um, that we think about as being you know, good you know, for prevention when we talk about deer tick bites specifically. There are different formulas for other tick bites. I just want that to be clear. And again, Dr. Chesney's really excellent book outlines all of this for you, for those of you who may be more interested in taking the deep dive. This is specific to deer tick bites only. Um, and this actually exists, this, you know, these four herbs exist in a ready-made tincture from a company called Blue Crow Botanicals. Blue Crow Botanicals is a company that sells what they call deer tick bite formula. It is these four herbs. It is already ready-made for you in a tincture. Um, you would, for prevention, take half a teaspoon three times a day before meals. And that's more for adults. Kids, you know, probably need a little bit less. Um, and I, you know, will never claim to be a pediatrician. Certainly, um, you can always check with your pediatrician. Most of them may not have as much of an idea when it comes to herbal dosing, though. So for kids, if they are, you know, under 100 pounds, you know, I would say, you know, doing, you know, probably like a, maybe a third of a teaspoon, you know, instead of the half. I think that when you're dealing with teenagers, you know, who are more adult weight, I think half a teaspoon three times a day is fine. Um, and you can put that in a little bit of water. These things don't taste great when you drink them straight. So you put that in a little bit of water and actually just drink that, um, you know, directly. Um, and I think that if you are a do-it-yourself person, again, you can actually get all these herbs um, and you can do it yourself. Please, if you're going to try to do that, get Dr. Chesney's book. Uh, she goes through how to source herbs um, and, and where to get them from. Personally, I go for the ready-made formula um, and I you know, do take this. I think that even though I, I would never call myself the biggest hiker or the biggest camper, I do hike and I do camp and I prefer to be much more on the safe side. Um, and so I, I do take this and you can get the smallest bottle on that website is $27. The biggest one is like $184. So there's a, a wide range of prices there. And you can get a size that makes sense for you, for your family, and how often you think you're going to be using them. And so again, you know, now let's think a little bit just about our, our pets, because we have two Rottweilers that we love dearly. And I don't know about you, but we take them on many vacations. And as I said, they were both bitten by ticks uh, last year. So I learned my lesson, and I know um, that I have to do better for them. Any animal that you have in your home who goes outside is gonna increase the risk of a tick bite. Um, and unfortunately, dogs can carry ticks back into the home. One study showed that pet owners have almost twice the risk of finding ticks crawling on them and about half, one and a half times the risk of actually finding ticks attached. So we know that the dogs can be carriers. I mentioned that you know when those ticks are waiting to find a host, that dogs are sometimes the host they find. So when you're in your home setting, you want to be considering, of course, using fencing that's going to keep wildlife out 
because wildlife can bring the ticks in, keep your dog from going into tick habitats. Um, and you want to be grooming your pets on a regular basis if they're outside a lot um, and conducting tick checks. Um, I like a lint roller. A lint roller can make it a little easier to just pick up anything that might be crawling on them. I, I, I personally need to do that with two dogs that have black fur. I'm not going to be able to see that tick. Um, and there are some specific pet products, you know, that, that you can use um, that will actually kill uh, ticks before they bite. Uh, these would be things like the Soresto collar, um, Canine Advantix 2, um, and then the Vectra 3D. The first collar, the Soresto, is safe for both cats and dogs. The second two systems I mentioned are only safe for dogs. Um, dogs um, and can also wear a little bandana or a shirt, if you like, that's been treated with permethrin. Uh, similar to how we would wear permethrin-treated clothes. That's actually part of my plan for my dogs this year. Since they both got bitten right, like on their neck, I'm going to get a nice little uh, permethrin bandana for them. So while we're hiking, they can be uh, a little more protected. Um, and if you look at the website Tick Encounter, they have a resource center where they put lots of information up there about your pets and how to protect your pets. And of course, your local veterinarian is going to be a really good source, you know, for, for more information. As I mentioned, Cedarside, um, that topical um, spray is good for dogs as well. You know, so you can definitely treat your dogs, uh, treat the bed that they've been laying on. Um, you can really treat everything and you're going to you know, really decrease your chances of a tick exposure. All right. So of course, despite doing everything perfectly, sometimes you're going to get bitten. Um, and, and now we want to think about what do we do, you know, when that happens? Um, I think that the first thing to do is not to panic. That may sound silly, but I think that we as humans have a really natural tendency to freak out when we notice that there's a bug attached to us. Um, and I've heard of people just kind of pulling the tick off, getting a match and a lighter and trying to burn it. None of these are good things to do, okay? We wanna remove the tick, of course, but we wanna do it in the right way because we want to get that tick tested. We want to test that tick for whatever bacteria or viruses it may be carrying. It is way easier to test the tick than it is to test humans. So what you want to do is get a tick twister. If you don't already have one of these in the home, I, I highly recommend it. Um, the tick twister by Otom is a good product. Um, it's very effective. There's actually two different sizes. Um, and it's really like almost like a fork looking device, except that instead of, you know, three or four, fork times, there's only two, and they're kind of bent, you know, so that they can actually latch on to a tick and, and lift it out. And they have two different sizes because obviously you are mainly dealing with nymphs, which are smaller and adults, which are bigger. So you need to first make sure if you notice that a tick is attached, you want to make sure that you have the right size tick twister. And then you want to really slide that twister over the tick from the side so that the tick is now in the groove between these two you know, little tines. And you're gonna rotate about five times fully, like corkscrewing it. And then you gently pull up. And that works really well. Um, if you don't have a tick twister, you can use tweezers. I think that's harder. Um, you can do it, but I, I do think it's harder. In that situation, you have to really grasp the tick as close to the skin as possible. And then you have to pull straight up. And once you've removed the tick, you want to put it into a Ziploc bag. Um, and you can now do a little bit of first aid for yourself. Um, again, back to herbs, you know, some of the herbs, even applied topically, can decrease the chances of transmitting, um, getting, of getting, you know, the, the Borrelia. You can actually kind of stop it, you know, on the skin, which is pretty awesome. And the one that you want to think about here is Andrographis. That's the, going to be the best one. It's sold in tinctures by a lot of high quality sites, but that site that I just mentioned, um, you know, is also a good place um, to get it via that the Blue Crow of Botanicals is another place to get Andrographis, but there's certainly other options, Woodland Essence, um, Lime Core, there are many places that sell really good high quality herbs and you can quite, you know, as I said, just apply that topically to where you removed the tick. And of course, you remember I talked about identification cards uh, some time ago. And once you've removed that tick, 
ideally you look at an identification card to try to see what kind of tick you're dealing with. Um, and that could be relevant if you're not in a region where deer ticks are the major presence. We have lone star ticks and other ticks that are in different parts of the country. And what kind of formulas you might take, as I said, will vary depending on the tick bite. So I think that if you were bitten by something other than a deer tick, you know, we, we may need to you know, do something a little different for you. And you can, as I said, get these cards online. Um, even Dr. Chesney's book also has a tick card included with it. Once you've been bitten, you should have a prophylactic herbal formula. Um, don't wait for the symptoms. I wouldn't wait for a blood test or anything like that. You know, I think that the deer tick formula um, that I mentioned is a really good place to start. It does cover a lot of the bases, even if you're not sure if you were bitten by a deer tick specifically, still, I think having that in the mix is gonna help you. Um, instead of doing half a teaspoon three times a day, you're gonna do a full teaspoon three times a day. Um, and then there's a few other additions there that you can, you know, get help with, you know, reaching out to your, you know, friendly functional medicine practitioner or naturopath, et cetera, who does, you know, some tick work, um, you know, we can help advise you, you know, what other things should you add? You don't have to wait though till Monday to call us, like start the formula and then we can talk after the fact. And so, as I mentioned, you want to be thinking about testing. Uh, and the best way to do this is to go to the website, tickencounter.org. Um, if you're somebody who is really passionate about this, I would just bookmark the website, tickencounter.org. Tons of amazing information there, lots of resources. And you'll see at the top of the website that there is a link for tick testing. And there's about four companies that you can choose from. The one that I have the most knowledge about is tickreport.com. Um, so that's usually my, my recommendation for people. Um, they make it pretty simple. You have really only three testing options. Um, the least expensive one and the least comprehensive is $50. The middle option is $100 and the most expensive one is $200. If you're able to identify the tick type, you may be able to do one of the less expensive options. Um, if you know that you know it was a deer tick, and we know that we can probably just test for deer tick things. Um, but maybe you weren't able to identify it. Maybe you don't have a card. Maybe when you were you know, removing it, the tick got kind of mashed and now you can't really tell uh, what it was. Um, then I say, honestly, go for the more extensive option, even though it can feel annoying to have to spend money and perhaps learn that the tick didn't have any bacteria or viruses in it. Um, I think though that it's well worth it uh, because if you do get a positive result, you are just so much more empowered. You can be watching for symptoms. You can talk to your practitioner. Um, they can be, you know, advising you about, you know, further, you know, preventive things to do, and then obviously be ready, you know, to really treat aggressively if symptoms develop. And that's really you know, key, because as we mentioned, so many people don't remember the bite, don't know they were bitten. Um, if you are lucky enough to, you know, find that tick, get it tested. You know, you will know what you were exposed to. That could be so much helpful, so much more helpful later on, because it's way easier to test that tick than it is to go through all the testing, um, you know, for humans. Treatment becomes so much more expedient. I want to just thank you all for spending a little time with me. I know we're getting close to the end of our time together and we'll obviously stop for some questions now. Um, I'm obviously really passionate about making sure that we do everything we can to stop the spread of Lyme disease. And I also am passionate about all of us enjoying our summer and the great outdoors. Um, I want us to find Lyme quickly, treat it appropriately as soon as we know what we're dealing with. Um, and at this point, I'm going to stop for, for any questions and further discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Montalvo. While you were presenting, I was already on Insect Shield and already bought socks. They Yay! have a sale. They have a Lyme <laughs> disease aware. It's Lyme Disease Awareness Month, of course. I already bought socks. So get out there, just get it, get, get the clothing. Um, really wonderful information. Like Dr. Montavo said, we will take about the next 10 to 15 minutes to answer any of your questions. Uh, let's see. A uh, great question just popped up. If I strongly suspect I have Lyme and test it negative, should I retest again? So I, I say yes. Um, if you were not tested 
by a specialty company, yes, definitely get retested. Also, okay. the timing of the test. In other words, let's sometimes people, they know they were bitten, they get a test four weeks after the bite, but we may not always be able to detect it that quickly. So I, I say, don't, don't live in doubt. I, I would definitely get retested. Okay, that's great. And which is a very frustrating thing. It is. It is to have to continue, you know, continually do that if you have these symptoms. And especially um, if your practitioner is not believing you and you're running into a lot right. of you know challenges with that, find somebody you trust. You know, absolutely. Exactly, and believes you, wants to help you heal. Uh, another question just came in: How do I cope with a Lyme relapse? Hmm. Oh, that is a that is a hard one. Yeah. So. Um, we could have about a, probably a three hour talk on that alone. So to be, to be, um, to be more expedient about it. Um, most of the time I'll speak from my own experience of what I do. So if someone's relapsing in terms of symptoms, I'm going to retreat or change treatment. Um, and I tend to do a mix of antibiotics and herbs. Some people don't do as well with herbs or don't do as well with antibiotics. And so obviously we have to tailor treatments, but if you're having a significant flare, of symptoms, that means that we need to do something to put that bacteria and friends perhaps into back into the back in the box, if you will. We really need to help you, you know, support your body in doing that. And certainly um, antibiotics and herbs are one way. Um, obviously, functional medicine, we think about things a lot more holistically. And anybody who you're working with, you know, they should be thinking about everything else that goes into that. You know, what are you eating? How is your, how are you living life? You know, what is your stress? Like are, is your mind in a true healing mindset? Um, we, I think so many of my Lyme patients go through stressful events with family. I just had a patient earlier today, had about three terrible things happen in the last two months. And, you know, after years of really not being symptomatic at all, you know, symptoms are back, you know, so, so we're, we're treating. Um, so I think that, you know, most people deserve treatment. They may not need um, a full four antibiotic protocol, but probably you probably need some supportive, you know, herbs. You may need some supportive supplements. Um, obviously, it depends a lot as to what's specifically happening with you. There's definitely no one size fits all here. Um, but please, yeah, please um, reach out, you know, to your practitioner. And if you do not have, you know, a practitioner that you trust who, you know, is really partnering with you, you know, definitely find someone who can. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, somebody just wrote in and said, what is the best diet for someone who's been diagnosed with Lyme? And I know you kind of touched upon that. Mm. Is there any foods that you should really eat more of, or maybe remove from your, your diet altogether? Right. That's a great question. So you definitely want to stick to the template of a nutrient dense whole foods diet. And what I mean by that is you want to eat as many foods as possible in their natural form. In other words, they're not coming in a bag or a box or a can. They're not processed. Um, that's important. And many foods that support the immune system that support um, the, um, and support, you know, sort of our ability, you know, to detox, which is an issue, you know, for many people with Lyme, um, that's going to come down to your cruciferous vegetables. So things like broccoli, cauliflower, um, very important, um, omega-3 fatty acids, very important for the immune system. They help to shut down inflammation. Um, you can get omega-3 fatty acids, um, to a point, you know, you'll, you'll get them, um, in sometimes they'll show up in, in, um, animal, you know, meats and such, but really it's cold water, fatty fish is really what you're looking for. Um, and that's the smash fish, your salmon, your mackerel, um, your anchovies, sardines, um, you know, the, um, herring halibut. I know people here like sardines and anchovies like oh my god i had a can of sardines for lunch today and it was fantastic you know they just they come they come in like flavored olive oil it's, it's really excellent um you can yeah. also add um, extra virgin cod liver oil to your supplement regimen um, that's a wonderful source of omega-3 fatty acids i like it better than fish oil capsules because there's mm -hmm. sometimes problems with how fish oil gets extracted and processed yes. um, i'd rather people just 
go for a vir an extra virgin cod liver oil. There are varieties that are a little bit flavored um, and I think they taste good. So those are yeah. just a, a few a few pearls. I would definitely stay away, especially if you're in a relapse. I would stay away from foods that are inflammatory, um, mm -hmm. your processed foods, your sugars. Um, definitely like really try to stay away from those and stay away from foods that you know don't agree with you. If you know, if you're sensitive, you know, to something, you know, um, your immune system is trying to tell you something, don't, don't throw more fire on the immune system if right. it's already struggling. Exactly. Because really you have to keep your gut health yep. really, really robust and healthy in order to be able to, to fight the Lyme in a lot of ways, right? Absolutely. Yep. Most of the immune system lives in the lining of the gut. Lives in the lining of the gut. Exactly. Well, they're, that, they're really good tips. Um, somebody just wrote in, this is a really good question. I've been diagnosed with Lyme. Can I contract it again? Yeah, I know it's a, you can definitely reactivate. That's how I call it. Activate. Okay. I'd say reactivate. Um, so, so yeah. So if you're somebody who um, you were, if you were early diagnosed um, and you were fortunate to get the diagnosis early to get you know, hit with aggressive antibiotics early on in those situations, that's probably about as close as we can come in my mind to a cure. I still don't talk about it as cure. I just talk about it as long term, long term remission. Um, okay. But that's probably the closest to cure, you know, that that we can that's come. Um, if, you know, we're talking about, you know, a situation where diagnosed months or years, you know, down the line, um, you know, I think about that as, you know, we need to keep those organisms indolent. Um, I worry less about cure and more about the remission piece. But if you're bitten again, if you are bitten again, um, you can certainly be, um, you can be exposed, um, not just to, you know, another Borrelia species, which is possible, right? Like what if the first time around the line was Borrelia burgdorferi, but now you get bitten and it's Borrelia miyamotoi, right? Mm -hmm. So you can definitely contract. Um, a different species of Borrelia. And as we mentioned, countless co-infections, you know, um, so, so yes, I, I definitely, I think everybody, even if you already have a Lyme diagnosis, it's mm -hmm. prevention is super important. Prevention. Definitely. Uh, let's see. Somebody just wrote in and said, are ticks more attracted to some blood, blood types over others? That's a really interesting question. It is, it is. And I, I know I've heard this before. Um, and I don't think that we have evidence to say that it's definitively true. I think that, you know, I know we, it sort of feels like it should be true, right? There's some people that they're always getting bitten by mosquitoes. They're always, you know, and some of us are, are just really never being bitten by mosquitoes. So I have heard that um, as well. I don't honestly think we have enough evidence to say that that is the case for sure. You know, ticks, as I said, they seem to be most interested in body heat and carbon dioxide, which yes. you know, is obviously going to be present in humans, no matter what our blood type is. Right. That's, but that's a good question though. Cause I've heard that about mosquitoes being more attracted to like, O blood type, but again, we don't, we don't yeah. really know. Well, that's a good question. I'm an O blood type. I never get bitten. <laughs> no. Really? I get bitten all the time. <laughs> it's sweet blood. Um, let's see. Somebody just wrote in and said, is there any hope for living a symptom free life from Lyme? Yes. Okay. Yes, people, people get that's better. Good people get better and they, and they can move forward. It is, there's a, that's a lot to unpack, but I'm going to try to be brief about it. Okay. It's a question of how much someone needs to do. And, and some people frankly are going to be luckier, right? They may need to do less things to get to that symptom-free point. Um, and some people are going to need to do more. And so this is where having a partnership with a practitioner can, is really important. You need to like be with somebody who is going to, you know, work with you um, and who's going to encourage you to really think about the Lyme, not just from the supplements, meds and herbs perspective, but from truly a mindset and brain perspective. Um, it's really fascinating to me. Um, sometimes, you know, we meet people and they're very convinced that they're never going to get better. And often it's really hard for those people to get better. And then when those people or, you know, others who are kind of more of the mindset of, I believe that I can get better. I, I am obviously a scientific person, but mindset matters. Mindset matters. Healing mindset absolutely matters. And doing things to be healing on a regular basis. It's so important. My, my mentor, who's been doing this for well over 10 years, you know, says this all the time that, you know, he tells his patients focus on what you want more of in your life. If you keep focusing on, you know, 
the Lyme symptoms, that joint pain, that brain fog, your focus to a certain extent does determine your experience. Right. So it's not to say you should you know, lie and ignore these things. Of course not. Um, but it is to have a balance. Um, and so I think that, you know, there is definite hope, definitely hope people get better all the time. And yeah. so many practitioners go into this type of medicine because they had Lyme or some co-infection and they found someone to help them and they're thriving. They're thriving. You know, and there's really no reason why you, you can't either. Absolutely. I think that's so important for people to hear. Cause like you mentioned earlier, a lot of times patients, their doctors don't believe them. Yes. They just kind of write it off as, oh, you have this or that. And they don't believe them. So knowing that there is hope is amazing. Yeah. It really is. Cause it's hard to avoid. They're everywhere. <laughs> they're yeah, everywhere. Exactly. They're I mean, all over the place. It's probably more accurate to say not, not really if you've been bitten, but when I, I think that we're all yeah. going to get bitten. Um, right. I'm not, you know, if, if, for those of you who are you know, interested in reading a little bit more about just uh, the climate change situation and how that has impacted tick patterns, because it has. Um, yeah, Dr. Richard Horowitz, who's really a forefather um, of treating Lyme, recognizing it as a chronic condition for some people, um, recently wrote a book. Um, you know, um, that's kind of like a snarky book. Um, I think it's called like, it's like Starship, Starship something, but it's a, it's a, it's snarky. And, and I think that it, 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 it does help explain a little bit as to, you know, why, you know, that, that, you know, piece of it does, does matter. So, yeah, I think that it's, it's more kind of a, a when less of an if. Yes. I've heard about that with climate change and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they live longer. Sense. They live longer. You know, they're, they were already hard to kill and now they live longer. There's more of them. <laughs> Tough little creatures, aren't they? Really tough. Um, somebody just wrote in and said, can my Lyme symptoms appear years later after a bite? Yes. Yes, yes. they can. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a number of times. I have okay. a gentleman, you know, in his 70s who actually came to me just to prevent cognitive decline, doing very well in life. But on his history, all of these interesting soft tissue problems weird joint pains and, and like tendon problems and, and other, and, and I, you know, then started asking him where he grew up and how often was he outside and did he know, and like, and it turned out he knew he'd been exposed to a lot of ticks and we did the hygienics testing, you know, and we documented, you know, um, that exposure, you know, definitely, you know, being, being certainly maybe part of his story. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think it, it's so frightening when ticks can be the size of a, a, a period at the end of the sentence. How do you find them? How do you find them in your, your scalp or just even on your body is very, very difficult. Yeah, that's, that's where I think the topical stuff is so important and, and spraying so important. your head, spray your hat, spray everything. You know? yes. Yeah. Then- I notice they even have hats that are, are treated. Yeah. Just from my computer. Just wonderful. And, and speaking, uh, speaking about that, somebody just wrote in and said, if I wear a hat, if I wear the pants that are treated, do my chance, are my chances, what, I guess, what's the percentage um, of, of reducing Lyme? Right. Or, or well, getting it, Is it pretty high? It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty high. Yeah. So I think, uh, I, I, you know, I won't go, I won't go backwards, you know, now, um, because I, you know, realize that that's just going to make things kind of crazy. So, so I'll, I, uh, but if you remember, I did mention very briefly, there was a statistic about people who wore uh, permethrin treated clothes. It was like 73 times less likely. It was wow. like, it, it was like a, um, actually, I mean, it, no, I think it was the North wow. Carolina study and those people with permethrin treated clothes, it actually was like 90 something percent wow. less likely to be bitten. It's a substantial health. Yeah. Uh, ticks yes. do not like permethrin. They will That's run away great. from it. Yeah. That's great. I'm happy to wear it then. <laughs> happy to it's wear safe everything. For, safe for us like when that. it's dry. Safe for us when it's dry. Yes. And you know, kind of speaking along those lines, somebody just wrote in and said, should I always wear a hat when, I, when I'm out hiking? Um, I think that if you are going to be hiking in woody areas, mm-hmm. um, I would. I would. I mean, okay. again, you know, I, I tend to wear a hat all the time just because even if I'm kind of, you know, in a, I don't know, a Rocky yeah. Mountain situation where ticks are a little less of a concern in the moment. Right. I mean, I still wear a hat just because I, I like to shield the sun off my face, but, I do too, but, yeah. Yeah, but, but I think that, you know, if you're going to be in grassy woody areas, I would, I would wear a hat because I mean, you just think about it. It makes it that much harder for the tick to get on your scalp. Right. Cause you could pass under a tree branch and that easily it could jump onto you and, and latch on and bite you. 
Exactly. Wow, they're really ruthless. They are. <laughs> they're ruthless. Are awful. Like you said, I guess we have to have some type of respect for them since they've lasted so long. Millions of, years. millions of years. They have been here long before us. They will be here long after us, most likely. Yeah, it's, it's pretty frightening and, and pretty amazing. Um, oh, people are just writing in saying thank you. I, I think oh. this has been a really, really helpful webinar, especially as we're starting to get into the warmer months. Thank you. Um, That's what I was say, hoping for. Yeah, we don't want to be shut-ins and just be indoors. We want to be out and enjoy nature and, of course, have our, our pets enjoy nature. So this has been really, really helpful. And all the resources just for prevention um, are wonderful because there's a lot of information out there. You don't always know what to believe all the time and what works. Well, I'm glad to be able to do this. I, I think it's, as I, you said, the perfect timing. You know, let's all get out there Definitely. and enjoy nature and de-stress and just do it as safely as possible. Exactly. And, and right. And not worry about it when we're out there. Um, thank you so much just for your time, your expertise, everyone who joined us tonight. Prevention is key. Um, in the meantime, as well, visit us at forumhealth.com connect with us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We have tons of great content about a variety of uh, health conditions and different topics. Um, so please connect with us there. And again, thank you so much, Ma Dr. Montavo. I really appreciate it. I bought pretty much everything. So <laughs> thank you. Are you and me both. <laughs> and happy hiking. Yep. Happy hiking. Happy, hiking, happy camping. camping, everybody. Have a wonderful yes. summer. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.